this three-part series, so Menzies, Kurt and Chifley, it will start as it will end with Robert Menzies becoming Prime Minister. Before we do that, though, we have a big welcome back to P.Y. from WA. Uh, here welcome he is. back, P.Y. It's good to have him back. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to make it back. Sad to miss the last few, but hey. We do have a very important question to ask. Yeah, so did you find the plaque? Did you find Dirk Hartog's plaque? You're referring your to, to Dirk Hartog. <laughs> <laughs> I get a feeling that if someone goes to WA and you say the plaque, I feel like everyone knows what we're talking about. Um, or just, yeah. were there any remnants any of, memorabilia of, of Dirk Hartog? Any merch? Because if not, I think that's a major oversight <laughs> from, um, from Visit WA. I think um, I've got nothing for that. Uh, so Dirk Hartog, though, that's presumably not near Perth. No, I think he was violent. It's a bit further north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, nah, I went south. <sighs> Sorry. And you were saying off air that you were like, you, you spent a significant amount of time with people above your age demographic at WA. Correct, yes. And you were pre-preparing <laughs> or preparing what your conversation points were going to be at these kind of yeah. functions you were going to. Yeah. Because you're a bit of a fish out of water and you're like, okay, mm. Western Australia, AFL, Sheffield Shield, Cam yeah. Green. Explaining my thought process well without me even actually thinking that. So, yeah, I was like, yeah, I can chat about AFL to these people. That's big in WA. So if I ask them, hey, what, what AFL team do you support? You know, West Coast, Frio. That's what they call Fremantle. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, <for> the translation. Just let it get into Dutch for us. But. <laughs> and uh, the response I got to this question three times was, Oh, I've actually stopped supporting the AFL. It's become too politicized <laughs> and too political. So I, ju- I just don't watch it anymore. So they, d- they don't answer the question. <laughs> and my response is like, yeah, I'm a Swans fan. I'm a Swans fan. <laughs> <laughs> I love the absolute like Oh yeah this this guy in his 20s Will know how to pick up the pieces from here And move on in conversation <laughs> yeah. yeah I don't know Support lower um, league teams yeah, Dirk, Dirk Harper yeah. Island <laughs> FC <laughs> Get it started You know if we ever become If we get enough Patreon dollars hmm. I wouldn't be opposed to doing a Welcome to Wrexham project on Dirk Hartog Island. <laughs> Firstly, getting some people to live on Dirk Hartog Island would be our first obstacle. In yeah, just, how many people on an AFL team? What do you need? How many on the field at one 18? time? If, 18. If you do know how to play and you are interested and we can put yeah. it on the main channel for Mr. Mitchell History <laughs> and you are interested in the documentary, we can begin Welcome to Dirk Hartog Island. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, good to be back. Uh, shame to miss... That that episode of the colonialism mm. but could, have, could, have, could have could have helped you for some of those conversations by the sound yeah, of it for yeah. Yeah. being too politicized. Could have hurt. I also felt I, I listened to those podcasts and, and and well done, but I did feel like it was it was almost sad in a way. If you you asked a question of oh I knew what to say there or mm. something, he just can't switch off. Just always on, <laughs> always on the podcasting <laughs> podcasting mindset. Yeah. And in terms of a, a a topic that we usually talk about, that one would have been in the top tier of of knowledge. Yeah. Probably mm. in that I've just read 
James Cook's Wikipedia page, but <laughs> you know, for context, PY did get COVID for that one. Yes. So we, yeah. we were prepped. Well, I was prepped, yeah. ready to go, and then PY woke up with COVID. Mm. So unfortunately, couldn't cast away. But my first thought was, I cannot believe PY is missing this one. Mm. It was very, very unfortunate. If but you stick, stay at home. If you sick, stay at home. <laughs> check the NHS. We will do more colonial history, of course. So there's a whole there's a whole century we haven't yet touched. Of course, of course. Mm. Yeah. And Flinders and Bass are only scratching the surface of, oh, yeah. of, of what's to come. Mm. I wonder if there are primary school houses that are named after primary. Surely somewhere. Surely in like Victoria, there's a house called Menzies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, w- yeah, happy like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Team Hartog. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm Bear Demon. We hate Hartog. <laughs> Everywhere we go. <laughs> yeah, I reckon there's definitely. I feel like even I've, I would have heard of a school that's got Menzies. Hmm. There's, there's maybe he's alma mater. Yes. Mm. Well, there's Robert Menzies College, which is connected to Macquarie Uni, and Menzies. I think Menzies had no connection to Sydney. That's what I'm okay. confused about. Yeah. So he was a Victorian. So his grandparents migrated from Cornwall to Victoria mm-hmm. during the gold rush. Wanted to cash in mm. on, yeah, uh, on some of that Ballarat, Ballarat, and so, so like the, the the Bitcoin of their time. I feel you know, man, just, uh, <laughs> everyone wanted to strike while the iron is hot. You guys, this Patarabakoid's going off, man. I got <laughs> and so he did move to ba- his uh, family did move to Ballarat. Actually, well done, Py again. Yeah, yeah, coming in red hot <laughs> on, on these ones. And so basically they're migrants during the gold rush. Funnily enough, today we'll cover a year five camp and year six camp covering both the gold rush and Canberra. Do you reckon like the transition from doing year five camp in Bathurst and the gold rush to year six is like just reflective of Menzies' journey? Is that kind of what we're trying to, yeah, what we're sort of parroting Well, because here? of our instant gratification culture, we can't spread it out <laughs> over generations anymore. It has to be, <laughs> has to be now. year by year. Yeah, so true. <laughs> Only one year after the other. Yeah, kids can't wait for anything these days. <laughs> Got to give them the whole Menzies experience in two years. <laughs> Do you remember Robert Menzies in kind of the pantheon of prime ministers in year six? HSIA. Grey hair, bushy eyebrows. Very bushy. That's, yeah, that's Bob. <laughs> I think I'm, the only thing I remember, he was our longest serving, was he not? Correct. Yeah, so, I think that was the kind of. At the time. That was the. Mm, no, still, still. still serving Maybe not over in one. Over two terms. Over two terms. No, even in a single. I, I, oh, wow. Like multiple terms because. That one term is three years, but yeah, like yeah. But one, multiple sit- one sitting. Yeah, one sitting. And it's funny you say that actually, because on uh, one of my last, so my last pretty much my, my swan song at school, high school that is, okay. was a trivia night that I think you might've been involved with PY. Yeah, I was there. Do you remember there was a lot of controversy? So just, I'm just going <laughs> to flag it in advance <laughs> with, <laughs> with I, I was in the winning team. Let's get that on there. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a double-edged sword because we won trivia, mm. but our reward for winning trivia was going to flip out the kind of trampoline place in Carring Bar. I love flip out. Which is great in of itself. But they cashed it in on the last day of year 12 when I would have been playing my final game of handball. No. And wow. so I was... I went to flip out in year 12 and it wasn't on that. Yeah. Day. So I had to have a premature retirement and... Mm. Maybe we don't love flip out. Yeah, it has coloured my opinion ever since. Go Sky Zone if you've, if you've got a choice. Stop. I've got to stop 
advertising these companies without them giving me money. <laughs> <laughs> if you are, that actually does bring us a quick, quick side point. We are looking for a sponsor for this podcast. If you happen to have any connection to preferably Australian small business, but any business is fine. But we'll obviously we'll sign off on it. But we, we are primarily an Australian audience. So yeah. if you need to market to Australian people and you want to reach 5,000 yeah. Australians a month, as 5,000 well as- quiet Australians. <laughs> <laughs> and... I'll take rival trampoline parks <laughs> to <laughs> my previously mentioned trampoline park. Mm. <laughs> Though if Flip Out does want to rival that, <laughs> um, you can get yeah. in contact at Mr. Mitchell History at gmail.com or Mr. Mitchell History Podcast mm. at gmail.com or just get in contact with the Twitter or sign up on Patreon and <laughs> get, a, get straight to DM. What happened at the trivia night? So basically, <laughs> controversy, controversy. Mm. One of the SLC president is running the trivia night. And so she does the question, who is Australia's longest serving prime minister? Okay. I'm like, boys, I remember from the wall in, and girls, we, we're from yep. Boston, I remember from the wall in year six, mm. it's Menzies. Mm-hmm. Howard's got 11, Menzies, Menzies beats 11. Menzies, Menzies goes for near, what, effectively 16. Okay. So he's quite comfortably ahead of Howard. Yeah. We do the reveal at the end. We're kind of marking each other's stuff. And she goes, and the answer to Australia's longest serving prime minister is John Howard. <laughs> now, Mr. Spark is actually not an alien. <laughs> <laughs> he is half human. Who's the, who's the leader of Cuba? <laughs> I can't remember what David Brand answers that question with it. But basically, I'm a quiet Australian, right? So I'm not going to like, Cred a stink. I'm, I'm a rather shy boy, but I know she's wrong. You're going to brand yourself as a quiet Australian. <laughs> In this context, I certainly yeah. won't. We're discussing two liberal leaders, and I, I know which liberal leader is the longest serving. So I convinced my team to put Menzies rather than Howard, and I had to fight off some people. Yeah. And they give me these deathies, and I'm like, I'm right. I, I'm, 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 right. I'm right here. Mm. But I'm not going to go up the front. It's a packed school hall. We're talking mm. probably, what, 200 people in the yeah, hall. Yeah. Yep. I'm not going to create a scene. <laughs> that being said, Come to the rescue. To Momatic. He had a reputation as being... I have no idea who this guy is. He's a Karen Wild North guy. Okay. Uh, but not an OC let's, guy. Let's share more about his... Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're on the main... God, you know that, right? <laughs> I think I think, I think he'd, he'd... What I know of him, having not seen him in nearly a decade, he's, he was quite proud of this moment in year 12. <laughs> I had a reputation for not being a particularly engaged student for a lot of... A lot of school. Reach year 11, year 12, he decides he's going to flick a switch and he gets really into Islam. He doesn't convert or anything, so he doesn't become a Muslim, but he just gets really into like the study of Islam. Yeah. And so I just remember in maths, he's telling us, like, again, he's gone real, he's a very intelligent guy, but just didn't care for most of school. Year 11, year 12, flicks a switch and he's telling our maths class about the five pillars of Islam. It's just this random guy from Caring Bar. <laughs> and so he comes running down the front and like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I am willing to break the phone rule to prove my point here. It is not John Howard, it is Robert Menzies. And he creates a bit of a storm and they have to do a remark and Robert Menzies is correct. Hmm. That So was he on your team? No, or was he, he wasn't. From a different, he was on another yeah. team. But that served us because then that put us into the grand final because yep. we were tied with another team. So it got us there. That was mm. sort of then and there. And then, then the, the final question was, when did the Titanic sink? Uh, girl on our team knew the answer to that. We won. So Oliver Donovan, thank you for making me miss my final oh. game of handball. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, you would have been across the office UK at this point, Cam. You no, must have been. No, I wasn't. Okay. This is, it's just that trivia episode. It's just... <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it mirrors it's the same, you guys. 
You didn't start throwing shoes over the building well. after. I've done that, like being the person to say, actually, the, this is actually the answer. <laughs> I've, I've got a study here that shows. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Most participated sport in Australia. I think the answer was soccer. And I was like, actually, if you look at the stats, it's swimming. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to talk Menzies though. Okay. So he was something of a child prodigy. Mm. We, I was going to use a name, but we are reserving those names only for the Patreon special. We have discussed some child prodigies on the Patreon special, mainly because Ben is a child prodigy and he had to face <laughs> off some, some rivals in, in, <laughs> in the class. But there was a big thing. I feel like Ben hasn't shirked any huge responsibilities in his life. Menzies, this would kind of haunt him forever. Because he was a child prodigy, his parents made the decision for him not to fight in World War I. That's going to be really important down the track. Mm. He was the last serving prime minister to be born in the 19th century. Yep. So it's weird to think that I was born in the same century as Harold Holt. I'm just, just, just let that ponder. Mm. I, I'm, I'm blown away by, by, by that. Unfortunately, you just miss out <laughs> on that, that honor, but <laughs> each their own. Grandparents came during the gold rush And so he's kind of set up in Victoria Becomes his child prodigy Becomes um, Or gets involved in law So I don't know if he did his Law reviews But kind of like A, a Gough Whitlam sort of figure In yeah. that Yeah Goes into politics through law Which is commonplace today But in the Early 20th century That's actually a huge class statement Because if you're Labour You come through the unions And we're going to meet someone Who came by being a train driver And Often, a lot of UAP, liberal, protectionist MPs just came from other means as well. So this is actually quite a class statement that Menzies has come through being a lawyer. He didn't fight in World War One. That's going to daunt him. He gets involved in state politics, first of all. So he's a Victorian state MP. And then in 1934, he becomes the member for Kuyong in Victoria. Mm. That's Josh Frydenberg's old seat. Okay. Kuyong Tennis Classic. What's that? That's a tennis tournament in the lead up to the Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I believe. I'll take your word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it, I guess. <laughs> no, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> so, so Menzies is kind of this prodigy and he's seen by everyone as the natural leader of the UAP down the track. So he gets involved in the UAP. We, in the Jack Lang episode, we discussed the formation of the UAP a little bit. Nothing to do with Clive Palmer's United Australia Party. Effectively, what happened, it was a defection from Joseph Lyons, who was Labor, and he merged with Billy Hughes' Nationalists, and they formed the UAP. It's basically, just think of it as the old brand of the Liberal Party. Same party mm-hmm. that becomes the Liberal Party, but under a different brand. And in a similar way to kind of Keating and Hawke, he is seen as the natural successor of... Joseph Lyons and this guy like Menzies he's got way too much talent to kind of keep him in the back benches so he's kind of deputy of the UAP he's seen as the natural successor of Joseph Lyons Lyons is like yep I'll hand it over to Robert Menzies when the time is right and like Bob Hawke he just never hands it over Mm. he likes holding on to power all the time just wasn't right you know it was never going to be right yes it's just and the United Australia Party was not particularly united 
That's poetic. That's your fly of acrostic that, poem. Yeah. <laughs> this is podcasting, right? <laughs> it's like the, did he say that? <laughs> it's like the not so friendly Geordies, am I right? <laughs> so, 1938. Menzies is getting a little frustrated. He's like, come on, my, my time is right. It probably feels like, you know, have you ever had to speak at an event or something like where you've got a very limited time frame and the person before you is chewing up all the time mm. and you're stressing out because you've got to condense what you had planned? It's very stressful. I don't know. Mm. Maybe because I'm in a teaching role, that lens, that sort of opportunity lends itself more to me. It's very stressful. And Robert mm. Menzies is kind of like, am I just never going to be prime minister? Is this all just a bit like by the time that I'm the leader? Well, we have just given Labor a kind of a free pass to kind of be in government for a decade and I'll just be in opposition later. So he's getting a little bit agitated. In 1938, he kind of takes his stand against Joseph Lyons. Something called the National Insurance Scheme. Basically, it was kind of a, an early version of the welfare state. So the 30s is the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt does the New Deal in America. There's a lot of social welfare that comes with that. And so they toy with the idea of Medicare, but kind of a lot of what Medicare offers is kind of stripped back. Just very basic things are provided by the government. There's a pension, disability insurance scheme in its kind of early form. Very basic welfare state. Menzies resigns over that. He's like, no, nah, I'm out. Doesn't want it. Doesn't want it. That's mm. what that's and that's what he's going to stake his reputation on. Okay. Sounds like a very similar ideology to some people close in my life. <laughs> Jake just surrounds himself with capitalists. <laughs> so Menzies then from the sidelines, so he resigns, goes to so he resigns from cabinet, goes to the back bench. So he doesn't resign his seat, I should say, he resigns from cabinet, goes to the back bench, and then he just basically acts as like a de facto opposition leader from within their own party. So like Joseph Lyons is trying to pitch an idea. He's just there like, boo. <laughs> no one wants that. <laughs> or he does like the really like passive aggressive in a meeting. Um, just wondering, have you considered? <laughs> <laughs> the relationship is quite fraught. Hmm. Menzies has a backer. A very important person backs Robert Menzies. His name is Keith. Keith Urban. Mm. I wish. Keith from the office. <laughs> Keith Galloway. <laughs> he is the father of someone who is still alive today that is very important in Australia. You sure it's not Keith Urban? <laughs> <laughs> Keith's son is about, I think he's about 93 years old. And to confirm, his name is not Keith. Oh, it's Murdoch. Is it Murdoch? It's Keith Murdoch. Yeah, okay. Oh, that so, is an important backer. That is. Now, Keith yeah. Murdoch was nowhere near as powerful as what Rupert Murdoch would end up being. So, Rupert Murdoch, basically, when, when Keith Murdoch dies, Rupert Murdoch's left mm. with kind of the ruins of the empire. So, yeah. we're talking some newspapers in South Australia and Victoria. And then Murdoch goes on kind of a buying spree and then buys his way into New Zealand, the UK, the US and China. So, he's not as powerful, but he's still very important. So much so that when Menzies becomes Prime Minister, he actually gives Keith Murdoch a job in his government. So, he has the backing of Keith Murdoch, but Lyons isn't backing down. And Lyons is like, well, I was going to give it to you, but now because you acted like that, I'm going to give it to someone else. Mm. And that makes Menzies very upset. In April 1939, it comes to a head. Joseph Lyons dies. Oh, damn. World War II related Assassination. or Assassination. <laughs> sure, why not? 
some on Facebook <laughs> would comment this, comment that it was, it was he died of a heart attack, mm. and say, mm. are you noticing with every heart attack death right now, every like comment section is filled with ah another advocate for the jab and something yeah. like that. Yeah, say yeah. he 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 did die of a heart. Heart attacks did exist before the year 2020 mm-hmm. and he, he did die of a heart attack. And I think is he one of three prime ministers to have died in office? The other being presumably Harold Holt. Oh, yep. yeah. Asterix. Huge asterisk on that. <laughs> Harold Holt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I did a vertical comments. I realized no one could see this. <laughs> and the other one will come to me in a second. But he, yeah, he, he died in office, which meant Robert Menzies then assumed the post of being prime minister. Mm. But... Lyons didn't want him to be Prime Minister mm-hmm. and he had some enemies. Okay. The United Australia Party, they relied on... Is that in his will? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I bequeath the Prime Ministership to you. Uh, who's the... Who... Oh yeah, is, is it Vladimir Lenin when he dies? He's like, Stalin must not take over. Like that's his kind of like his like dying wish and then it, it doesn't end up happening. Um, presumably that was just inferred. Okay. Mm. So... Menzies moves to become Prime Minister But the UAP needs another party To remain in office That party is the country party Very similar to the It's the exact same as the Liberal National Coalition The UAP is Liberal Party The country party is the National Party They're led by a guy called Earl Page That sounds familiar He's not the guy from My Name is Earl Just putting, <laughs> just putting it out there Earl Page became the Prime Minister Okay so one of the few country party guys to become come prime minister. Hmm. And Earl Page, normally the nationals typically, or the country party typically just takes deputy leader. They take over in the time of crisis until the UAP votes for their new leader. Earl Page is like, no, <laughs> Robert Menzies will not become prime minister. I'll, I'll step down. I'll happily step down. Not for Robert Menzies. Hmm. He was loyal to Lyons. And Robert Menzies had a huge black mark on him. And meant he was untouchable. Because he didn't go to war. He didn't go to war. Mm. What, you, what was he doing, do you reckon, during that time? If he's a child prodigy, what's he doing between just at uni? 14 and 18? Is he, yeah. just, is he just on the grind? Yeah, yeah presumably so. Yeah, doing reviews. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of editorial pieces. Yeah. Of- <laughs> oh, Clemens like, yeah. <laughs> Have some hit pieces. What would Gen Z's version for that be? For like <laughs> something oh, that was our- prohibits one of us in the future from becoming prime minister because we didn't oh. <laughs> didn't go to. I thought of one, but <laughs> yeah. it's really bad. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe like it depends on the party, but maybe like the Cronulla riots. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's like, <laughs> that'd be the thing you you. So you're saying you, you needed to have attended that or you needed to not Maybe have attended that? Maybe for some that? political parties. Like. <laughs> <laughs> the Keep Australia Safe Party. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah, what do you reckon is like the closest we got to like war? Also, Gen Z would have been five. Yeah. When, like, at the oldest when the Cronulla Rise happened. Just sit there. <laughs> yeah. Maybe like, you know, I survived year four orienteering you know <laughs> on school camp you know? I got us out of the woods yeah, you, you cried because you were homesick at year five camp <laughs> you didn't even abseil down the eight metre wall bro <laughs> you got your mum to call to change your cabin you couldn't even stick out <laughs> you made the you made the B team in year six <laughs> yeah that's me done that's my political <laughs> ambitions <laughs> over so Earl Page he was a surgeon in for the uh, he was a, a surgeon uh, for the Anzacs in the First World War, 
And so he kind of is really big on the military honor culture and was like, no, mm. you didn't serve. Most people in the UAP are like, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of rubbish, man. Like we're down the track. We can see that World War One effectively, though it was a kind of a devastating war, it wasn't fought for any clear national security issue. Fair enough that he didn't put his hand up to go die in a war, particularly when he was a person of such gifted ability and could have been ser- and could have served the nation in so many other ways, such as he is right now. And Ra- so rational. And so I, I would say common sense prevailed within the UAP and. And mum said no. Yeah, mum said no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he had a doctor's name. <laughs> so El Page gets desperate and he doesn't give up. So he gets on the phone, reaches out to a guy called Stanley. Stanley was the old prime minister of Australia. His name was Stanley Bruce, prime minister of Australia during the 20s. So this was when the UAP used to be the Nationalist Party. And he's like, hey, Stanley, how you doing, man? <laughs> One last job. And Stanley Bruce is like, yeah. Why not? Why not? Yeah, Boy, exactly. Boys like, are on. Um, yeah, I'm back. And <laughs> basically, the UAP is is pretty pretty outraged over this. Lots of MPs threatened to resign over kind of Stanley Bruce being parachuted back in as the leader of the party. And it's this yeah giant standoff. And eventually Menzies emerges victorious and becomes the Prime Minister of the UAP. Or Prime Minister of Australia, leader of the UAP. 1939. It's a rather ominous year. Mm. What else happens in 1939? World War II. Germany invade Poland. Mm. Yeah. Are you think of that Family Guy episode where they go back in time? It's like September the 1st, 1939. I am now. I am. <laughs> There's something familiar about that date. <laughs> now, he, now he came in in April. So he's got, what, five months to kind of act before World War II begins. Obviously, he doesn't know World War II is going to begin. Those five months, they don't look good in hindsight, but they make a lot of sense at the time. So, back in 1938, Robert Menzies actually visited Nazi Germany. And basically, his stance on Nazi Germany was agree to disagree. Look, they do things differently to us, but they're a strong, resurgent country. Hitler's fighting off the Great Depression rather well. Let's just let them be. And basically, kind of toes the agree to disagree line. Bear in mind, we don't know the extent of the Holocaust by this point. The kind of mm. remember the kind of gas chambers and the death of six million Jews that comes afterwards. Or it comes during World War Two, and then knowledge of that comes really right at the back end of World War Two. We've got mm. things like Kristallnacht, where we have kind of the burning down of Jewish synagogues that happens in November of 1938. That is public knowledge, and that in of itself is a huge concern. But we don't know the extent to which anti-Semitism is going to reach in Nazi Germany. We also don't know that Hitler's going to do World War II. And it's very easy in hindsight for us to kind of grandstand about Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, being weak on Hitler. But they've just fought in World War I. They've gone through the Great Depression. Really, the last thing they need is another major war when they need to rebuild their country um, and, and, and get back on track. Hitler wants a part of Poland before he invades. So he's a big advocate for the place of Danzig. He's like, no, nah, this is German territory, not Polish territory. Was the Western Front in World War II, was that what you studied in modern history? The European Front? Yes. Yeah. So this is all mm-hmm. familiar background. Mm-hmm. So basically, he Hitler is saying, yep, this is mine. I want Danzig. I want uh, control over um, at least certain aspects of Poland and obviously eventually all of Poland. And Robert Menzies is a huge advocate for appeasement. And he's a big advocate for give Hitler what he wants and he'll back off. 
in hindsight, mm. dumb move, but it, it did make sense at the time. And he is not unlike all of the world leaders, Neville Chamberlain in Britain, and basically just kind of says, yeah, we need to give Hitler what he wants and we need to get him to be happy. And also, we've also got to remember that at the back end of World War One, Germany was, was screwed over so hard. Like, mm. we way too punitive in how Germany was punished. And effectively, that contributed to creating the Nazi party. <laughs> this is a quote from Robert Menzies. This comes in July of 1939. Mm-hmm. History will label Hitler as one of the great men of the century. Wow. This was two months before the invasion of Poland. It was aged like a fine wine. Yes. Jeez. And so obviously when Menzies comes back for round two in the 50s, like if you're Labour, you've just yeah. got to bring that up over <laughs> and over and over again. <laughs> hey, hey, what did you say? 1939 again? <laughs> like that's political dynamite forever. And that yeah. haunts Menzies for the rest of his life. But he does overcome it Monday, but not this day. So when... Hitler invades Poland. He immediately declares his support for Britain when Britain declares war on Germany. Bit of an issue for Australia, though. Australia is not in the same situation as Britain. For Britain, their primary concern is Nazi Germany because they're in Europe. Mm. For Australia, Hitler's got no ambition of conquering Australia. He couldn't care less about Australia. For all people say, talk of Hitler wanting to dominate the world, that was less important. It was dominating Europe. That's, that's what he cared about. So Australia, we're not under any national security threat by Hitler doing what he's doing in Europe. We're under kind of allegiance, like our, because mm-hmm. we've got such a strong allegiance to Britain, we've got that tie. The king. Yes. But we don't have a direct national security threat. But Menzies is getting quite concerned. So he declares war because we're going to support Britain, but he's not as hesitant to go quite as gung-ho as what we went in World War One. So in World War One, we were like, yep, support the mother country, let's throw all of our troops... And we've got no national security threat at home. We've got nothing to worry about. Let's put them all in Europe. World War II is a little bit different. Japan. Yes. Mm. They, had a re- they reinvented themselves. <laughs> a new year, new Japan. <laughs> well, so where were Japan? What were they doing in World War I? Mainly fighting off uh, kind of outskirts of the like, German colonial empire. So things like they kind of took over islands like Micronesia and that sort of thing. They also... Um, yeah, they basically, they were they were a minor player, but they were still in support of the Allies. We often forget about the kind of colonial yep. battles in World War One. Australia took New Guinea off the Germans as well. Hmm. So Japan, they come to the Paris Peace Conferences. They've got one demand and one demand only. We want a clause in the peace conferences that says all races are equal. Interesting. Pretty big demand, right? Like, yep, that's the one thing they, they say. Hmm. <laughs> Japan said that. Japan said that. Okay. This is so that would not really align them with the the Germans then. Yes, exactly right. So this is Imperial Japan in 1919. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, this is a pre-Imperial Japan. This is Democratic Japan 1919. Yeah. So they go, yep, racial equality clause. America, Britain, Australia, France. What do you think? What do you reckon happens? Well, it sounds like they say no. Like, it sounds like <laughs> there's two countries that lead that lead the no campaign on this one. Australia. Yeah. US yeah yeah okay that's mm-hmm. our contribution to the Paris Peace Conference yeah. is that we struck down the racial equality clause <laughs> so from America it was mm. on what grounds why on earth Probably would we strike that down something to do with Aboriginal people white Australia yeah so yeah. Yeah, less wow. Aboriginal more immigration policy oh, immigration. at the time yeah and America it was for Jim Crow like Jim Crow segregation laws yeah so 
if you kind of actually had that in, if you had that clause in, it would not reflect well on your own country's practices. Hmm. So Japan are like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're literally talking about changing over of territories, putting a US $40 billion uh, reparation payment on Germany. We're like, hey, all races are equal. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, nah. <laughs> um, so Japan frequently gets screwed over in the 20s. There's something called the Washington Naval Conferences that come in 1923. More or less, it's a it's a policy that limits them to having 60% of the size of America's Navy. And they agree to it because they don't want to annoy America. But they're like, basically, the agreement is you can only have 60% of America's Navy size. Okay, whatever. Like, that That kind of sucks. Yeah, that seems, <laughs> they, seems a bit odd. Over the 20s, again, democracy is new. They do not have a democratic tradition. They got instituted in the 1800s when the Europeans kicked the Tokugawa shogunate like off because mm. they wanted whale oil and then they instituted all these European practices and put European democracy in Japan so the Japanese people don't care for it at all and the remnants of samurai culture is still very much there and it's a heavy military culture so the Japanese military is like what are we like democracy is just leading to us getting screwed over consistently and so eventually what happens is the military start having a really strong hold in parliament and they fill up a lot of parliamentary seats with military men. In 1931, they actually go and invade Manchuria. Mm-hmm. That's northeastern China. The Japanese government doesn't sanction this. The military just does it. And then the Japanese government's in a sticky situation. Either they admit that they can't control their own military or they have to go along with it. And they go along with it. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we actually, yep, we, that, mm. that, that is true. We did mean that. Mm. Um, and what that shows is that the military can get away with whatever they want. And so the Japanese military then start making bolder and bolder moves all throughout the 1930s. The League of Nations at the time, they respond to Japan by saying, you can't have Manchuria, that's China's. And they say, you, you've got to get out of there um, before we send in like peacekeeping forces or anything like that. Japan is pretty annoyed with that. Hmm. From Japan's point of view, what's the great irony in occupying Manchuria and being denied Manchuria? Well, so what's their stake in Manchuria? I can't quite remember. Like, why do they think it's theirs to begin with? Uh, it's kind of considered... So there's, a, there's the first Sino-Japanese war in the 1890s. So that gives them control of Korea, northeastern China that's close to Korea, basically considered an extension of that. More or less, it's just wanting to build an empire. Right. And they're like, Europe... Why are you set like you yeah, are the yeah. biggest? <laughs> it's like that's been your thing for like the past two centuries, precisely. <laughs> and like we just want a little empire. Yeah. You have a big empire, and so Japan basically, yeah, puts the middle finger out, leaves the League of Nations because they're really bitter towards Europe. Now they start turning towards Germany and start turning towards Italy. And that's when you have the anti-Comintern pact, and that's where you start to get the alliance locked in stone. But Japan doesn't get involved in the war until 1941. They're not in the war in 1939. Mm. They make some bold moves. Like you have the Nanjing Massacre in 1937 where like it's pretty, it's the Chinese Holocaust basically. So many innocent Chinese are just slaughtered by the Japanese. And then in 1939, they're a huge threat, but they haven't done anything yet apart from China. China's the only place they've looked to take over. So for Menzies to kind of come full circle... This is where it's a little bit different between World War One and World War Two. World War One, he's like, yep, happily, well, not him personally. Australia's like, yep, happily, we'll send all these soldiers over to the U- to, over to Europe to help the UK. But in World War Two, Menzies is way more cautious, and he's like, 
look, we'll help you, hmm. but you need to help us because we're worried about Japan and Asia. Yeah. The reputation that Menzies has is that he's one, is that he's basically was a suck up to Britain. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's actually true. I think Curtin was way better at putting the middle finger up to Britain than Menzies was. But Menzies tried to talk Churchill around all the time. He just wasn't able to do it very successfully. So he's like, okay, we need support. We need your help to basically defend ourselves against Japan because we've got our own national security threat this time round. Mm. Churchill is like, sorry, mate. I'm fighting the Nazis here. Yeah. And he's like, but seriously, like Singapore can fall. Like you have no idea how quickly Japan could advance through the Pacific. Yeah. And yeah, Churchill's just like, ah, she'll be right. Yeah. Yeah, big whoop. Yeah. The boys on the Kokoda. <laughs> <laughs> so, Menzies is at home. He's got to pass some moves. The first one he passes is the National Security Act to institute conscription. Boo. <laughs> that is only applicable in home territory. So, you actually, there's a pretty sticky situation where you have, because conscription wasn't allowed for foreign overseas territory, we had an issue where... Once the Japanese, this will come in the, I'll elaborate more on this in the curtain episode. Mm. Once the Japanese were pushed out of Australia and New Guinea by conscript forces, then they passed into Dutch New Guinea. The conscript forces had to be like, oh, 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 can't step over that line. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh-huh. <laughs> Back off. <laughs> um, but he did institute basic conscription. He set up a, a second AIF, Australian Imperial Force, and basically he tried to pitch to the Australian Parliament. Get it, doing away with parties because that's what Britain effectively did. Britain did a united government under Churchill, neither Conservative nor Labor, but mm. Churchill's government. Was that just for the war? Just time? for the war, yeah. Yeah. Menzies pitched the same idea. John Curtin, leader of Labor, is like, no, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I want your job. <laughs> and so he, John Curtin, turns them down. We're going to roll around to the 1940. So 1939, it's just known as the phony war in Europe. Japan hasn't made any real moves in the Pacific. And we're going to roll around to 1940, August of 1940. Pretty much fast forwarding a whole year from World War II beginning. Have you heard of the Canberra air disaster before? No. I think think it has a section in the War Memorial. Right. No, I've never heard of it. Maybe. Look, Mm. I I can't scold you for not knowing it. My mind was in Questacon... When we were like, we, we went to the war memorial right before yeah. Questacon. Yeah. When we went to Canberra in year six, and it, yeah, my, my, my head was. Just I remember there. the tomb for the unknown soldier, but that was it. Yeah. yeah. That was all I can really. I remember recall. a plane. <laughs> the end disaster does yeah. involve a plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Three. Again, it's weird to think about just how many, like, because air crashes are much rarer today, but obviously the earlier you go in history, the more common air crashes are. Like when you look at sport, it's weird to think that like, yeah, you've got the Busby babes that died, like a whole Manchester United team effectively died in a plane crash. Hmm. Like three Australian politicians died in a plane crash. So it was a a plane crash, plane crash in Canberra where three Australian MPs just died in a plane crash. Hmm. If someone dies in office, what's the protocol for replacing them? Next, next cab. What? Oh, like they need to do they need to do another uh, election. Yeah, a by-election. Like, yeah. What did you say before? Though? I'm so, I think oh. you said next cab, didn't you? Yeah. Like next cab off the rank. Yeah. Oh, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so three by-elections. Organisationally, that's quite logistically tough. Yeah. Mm. Like everyone's been scolding at Albo for like the $400 million referendum or whatever because like it was a waste, waste of resources. 
That's the argument. Three by-elections is kind of racking up a similar bill. So logistically, it's actually like you've got, you need time to campaign. You need to hire people to kind of man all the different electorates and you need the snags. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, true. You got it. And you've got the distraction. <laughs> now, Menzies decides, you know what? Let's just, let's just, let's just have an election. Let's just all in. Everyone's up for re-election yeah. right now. And they do it. They get, they go to a general election. It doesn't go that well for Menzies. Hmm. So he doesn't lose, but it's a hunk parliament. So on the one hand, you've got the UAP and the country party. On the other hand, you've got Labor. You've also got a few guys from Lang Labor. Oh, so Jack... The Lang Gang. Yeah, the Lang Gang. So Jack Lang's still kicking around at this point, like 10 years after he nearly went to civil war. And he's kind of created his like own renegade from the Labor Party called Lang Labor. And then you've got some independent MPs. They have the deciding vote. So you've got three independent MPs that can decide either way. So very similar to the Julia Gillard situation where they've basically got to try and talk these independent MPs. The campaigns were really interesting and it reveals a lot about the way that foreign policy would go under each of them. Menzies' official campaign quote was back the government that's backing Churchill. Because mm. Churchill's done like his, yeah, his, his, his inspirational speech. He's known as a fantastic orator. He looks like a genius compared to Neville Chamberlain who looks... Is, sorry, like, is the sentiment positive around Churchill given, like, Gallipoli, or is that kind of... Do people not sort of know about that? Well, that's... They do, and that's that's what John Curtin tries to hit them with. Yeah, okay. John Curtin's like, what, you mean back the guy that, yeah, basically orchestrated the Gallipoli idea that led to, led to us, you know, um, being massacred on Turkish beaches? Menzies' counter to that was... This that was a crucial moment in the Australian identity. Are you saying Gallipoli? Like, what are you, what are you saying about Gallipoli here? And he tries to kind of wedge him on just how important Gallipoli was in shaping the Australian identity. Curtin's quote was, "It's time for a new deal." Where have we heard that before? Orcus. <laughs> I, I was thinking deal or no deal. <laughs> <laughs> I will bring case number 26 <laughs> Booyah um, Oh Brexit Time for a new deal Brexit means Brexit I don't know What are you going for? <laughs> the new deal <laughs> Wait what? Franklin Roosevelt's new deal To deal with the Great Depression uh, No, nah, I probably wouldn't have got there I don't think I mentioned it on the pod earlier today <laughs> But anyway uh, So Frank, Franklin Roosevelt, like his whole thing was, we're going to give a new deal to Americans. So it was this kind of huge advocate for a whole lot of social spending, which Herbert Hoover from the Republican Party wasn't doing. This is the first time this has been. Mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I literally said the phrase "new deal." Nah, cap. Earlier. On. <laughs> <laughs> nah, carry on. <laughs> it's a pro-America statement, and Curtin's like, "Stuff Britain. Mm. What have they ever done for us?" Mm. Like. America. Seriously, like, let's go to America because because of Hawaii, America is also as concerned with Japan as we are. We need to be with someone who's on the same page as us. And he's a big advocate of weaning off Britain and kind of aligning Australia with America. And so his whole New Deal thing was a very pro-America statement. A lot of power for these independent MPs. Hmm. Anytime there's a hung parliament, independents have power at the best of times, let alone when Australia's at a war and you've got 
two different approaches to how to approach the war. They decide, you know what? Let's just stick with the old guys. Stability is good during a war. And let's go with Menzies. And Menzies hangs in by the skin of his teeth. But as 1941 approaches, Japan's making moves to expand their empire. Namely, occupying Indochina, which is modern-day Vietnam. Yep. And Japan is hoping to seize the oil fields that are in Vietnam. Menzies is looking like a bit of a goose. We're going to go back to 1938, to Wollongong. Okay. Oh, the real beginning of the war. <laughs> <laughs> At holy bowling. Uh, so, what... What line of workers are the Illawarra famous for? I know it. I know this one. Is it oil? No. Steam? No, close. Is it steel? Steel. Steel, yeah. The Illawarra Steelers. Of course. So, Mm. I'll be honest, I was in my early 20s when I found out it wasn't the Illawarra Steelers, weren't thieves. I thought that's Uh, what it was for for so long until I learned about... Wait, oh, what yeah. sport is the Illawarra Steelers? Up, NRL. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, St. St. George Dragons, Illawarra Steelers, merged to become St. George Illawarra. Yeah. Gotcha. A little sports history. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the real war state of origin. <laughs> um, so, basically, the Steelers, and again, this is such a divide between the working class today versus the working class in the 30s. In the 30s, the working class was reasonably well-educated on political issues because part of the deal of being working class was that you're involved in labour unions. And so you'd kind of go to labour branch meetings and you'd talk policy. Now, it's, yeah, working class people couldn't care less about that. And the the kind of the steel workers at Wollongong and at Port Kembla, mm-hmm. they were adamant that we can't sell any iron to Japan. They were like, we, we refuse to put this on the ships to send it off to Japan. Okay. Because Japan could use it to attack yeah, us. that makes mm. sense. There's, there's logic behind that, that seems. Yes. Menzies in 1938, this is before he's prime minister, Menzies intervened to ensure that the that it could go. He was like, basically got the unions to back off and kind of overruled them and said, no, this is going to Japan. Because like, it's a, it's a good trade deal. We need to do this. Mm. Obviously, when Japan attack Darwin that, yeah. t- that that ends up with Egon and that, that, that comes later that's not in Menzies' time that's egg, yeah. egg, egg on his face for Menzies have you ever heard the, the, the phrase pig iron bob <laughs> no <laughs> is, is it is it relating to Robert Menzies is that what yeah, yeah like that's the insult yeah, yeah. so it's, it's actually like it, it's strange like if you you talk to anyone over the age of I don't know maybe 45 it's probably a phrase that they would have heard in their kind of schooling experience um, pig so, iron What's the pig part? Pig iron. Pig iron. Yeah. What's don't don't ask me to explain the science behind it. It's just pig iron. Okay. That's the material that was shipped. Oh, I see. Oh, right. I see. Okay. I thought it was like a an insult. Guinea like, pigs. Yeah. Or just like <laughs> oink oink pigs. Like, G force. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's. Not a good situation for Robert Menzies. Main character in G-Force called Darwin. Wow. wow. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyone who needs a related text <laughs> in year 12 right now. Now, 1941 rolls around. There's a bunch of military campaigns that Menzies is going to kind of focus his attention on. 
So the first is a plan to liberate France because France has fallen under the control of Nazi Germany. And so he sends the 6th Division to Egypt in preparation for an invasion of France. In 1941, he's invited to form the war cabinet which was basically Churchill's Avengers where Churchill discussed World War II in his sort of inner circle and so Menzies gets the call up to go overseas and involve himself in the conversations there's some chat around well we're in a war we need you to kind of you know Mm. be looking out for Australia most people are like well no it's very much war related right now have you seen on the news like Albo's just been copying it for going overseas to talk with Biden and talk with Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. And yeah. some people are like, oh, you had to go at Scott Morrison for leaving for the bushfire, like, like going to Hawaii during the bushfires. <laughs> Elbow's leaving during the cost of living crisis. Like, yeah, he's not going to Hawaii. He's talking <laughs> World War Three potentially to Xi Jinping. I don't think it's quite the same comparison. So Menzies goes and Churchill invites him into his war cabinet. There is a historian, I can't remember his name. I read him, read about him very briefly, who made an argument that, some in Britain wanted Robert Menzies to become the Prime Minister of Britain and to because they didn't like Churchill they weren't going to go labour anyone like that they wanted Menzies to come in and to effectively dethrone because of his he's got British ancestry so he's a UK he's citizen eligible. Right. Yeah, so okay. to come in and to take over as the Prime Minister of of Britain during World War 2 alternate history we've got an alternate history on what if that happened yeah Obviously, didn't go through, mm. and Menzies went to John Curtis. To Menzies went to Winston Churchill and was like, "You need to properly arm Singapore. Singapore is not actually capable of defending itself against a, Jap- a Japanese invasion." Churchill's argument was like, "No, you idiot! It's an island, and it's defended by the British Navy, the best navy in the world. There is no way Japan could take over Singapore." Six months later, it, we'll cover it next week, but six months later, effectively it happens. And Menzies, it's not for a lack of trying to get Churchill to support Australian interests. He's just not very good at it. Mm-hmm. And he can't talk Churchill around. And he doesn't have an alternative. He has no leverage on Churchill. When Curtin comes in, Curtin tries to leverage Churchill with America. And Menzies, he just doesn't make any progress. The final campaign, this one probably sinks Robert Menzies, is to do with Greece. So a little bit of a background. Did you look at Greece at all when you looked at... No, not really. Yeah. The Balkans is kind of like, that's my area of history that I'm really bad at. So like students will ask, like, yeah, like I've got a student that's particularly interested in Greek-Turkish history and he's asking me all these questions and like, mate, you would know so much more about this than I would. Um, Just, yeah. I don't know. Do you have a blind spot for maths? Like (laughs) one part of maths that you're like, man, that's my Achilles heel. (laughs) I, I don't know. I'm, I'm blind to it. <laughs> <laughs> man, integra- I don't know. I, yeah. I, I can't talk your level of math, but man, integration really. <laughs> um, Maybe trigonometry. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what happens with Greece is Italy first, like the Nazis outsource taking over Greece to the Italians, but the Italians stuff it up. So the Nazis have to do it themselves. And Hitler's really annoyed at Mussolini for doing that. Um, a lot of Anzacs fought to defend the island of Crete, so mm-hmm. just south of the main islands of Greece. And Birthplace of Zeus. Again, <laughs> Greek history is my Achilles heel. Pardon the pun, it's my... Oh. <laughs> that could be completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> so 
the Nazis, they took over the island of Crete, effectively paratroopers parachute down and, and take the island and they a lot of them get killed in the air and Hitler kind of gives up on the idea of paratroopers. But they successfully take over the island and New Zealand forces in particular, but also Australian forces, were really important in trying to defend Crete. Nazis just had too much too much power and overwhelmed the Australians. And Robert Menzies looks like a bit of a goose again. He's like, why are we defending Greece? We've got to worry about Japan. Um, this isn't helping defend Britain. Why are we throwing soldiers at Greece? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And Menzies is left with egg on his face once again. Menzies' defense is he goes to Thomas Blamey, the kind of general that was overseeing all of this. It's like, why did you try and stop me? Why didn't you like? <laughs> why didn't you tell me it was a bad idea? What? Yeah. <laughs> and he puts the blame on Thomas Blamey for for not trying to stop him. <sighs> Menzies comes home. He gets a roaring reception from the crowd. So they're waiting at the airport. The <laughs> the quiet Australians <laughs> they come out in full volume for Robert Menzies. But the party is not as satisfied. Mm. While Menzies was gone, he can't oversee his own party and his party make moves against him. <laughs> so the UAP talks about leadership change and it's like, yeah, we need to have a new leader. Um, and they actually lose confidence in Menzies because they think that he's too preoccupied with Britain and wanting to kind of satisfy Churchill that he can't adequately defend Australia's main need, which is Japan. Bear in mind, Japan has not done Pearl Harbor at this point. So this is still pre-Pearl Harbor, Japan. They are technically not in the war just yet. But it's pretty clear where the tide is going. And they think, no, he hasn't done enough. Menzies gets back. Even though he gets a roaring reception from the crowd, he's got to resign Hmm. as leader of the UAP. So theoretically, a new UAP person should become the Prime Minister of Australia. But remember, Mm -hmm. he needs those independents to govern. Uh, and those independents are like, what the heck? We said we yes, to Robert. St- well, yeah, we said yes to stability. Like that's yeah. why we put mm. you. That's why he gave that vote to you. Stuff you. We're going for John Curtin. Okay. And then John Curtin becomes the new Prime Minister of Australia. Wow, what drama! So, what year is this? Nineteen forty-one. Okay. So still, he's got a he's got a lot of war to go. Yes. And in what also happens in nineteen forty-one. Is that when Japan Is that Pearl Harbor? The That's war? Pearl Harbor. Yeah. The New Deal? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, Pearl Harbor. So okay. basically, Curtin comes in and then the game really kicks off. And Curtin's response to that has garnered him by many as being the best Prime Minister Australia's ever had. But mm. not everyone agrees with that. And we'll have to find out next week oh. if you agree with that. Wow, what a thriller. And for Robert Menzies... <laughs> He is a failure at this point. Mm. You botched World War II. Pig Iron Bob. And so he's got to come back from the death as well. Wow. His story's far from over. His story is far from over. We're just mm. part one in this three part series. Oh my like gosh. The storyteller. Cam, <laughs> yeah, and you, you kind of, your inflection changes at the end. You slow down, <laughs> you're speaking, and you should, the tension, doesn't you it? You should hear me talk on the Patreon now. <laughs> <laughs> We'll leave you till next week. Cheers.